Good evening, and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law. We thank you for joining us this evening. The immigration crisis in the United States is as American as is apple pie. In addition to the history of land conquests, which secured the territory which now constitute the United States, decisions regarding who can enter the United States and become its citizens have been designed to disadvantage racial minorities. Fast forward from America's history to America's present reality, racial minorities are marching to or camping at the southern borders seeking entry, opportunities, and the promises that this country offers as the nation of immigrants. And the picture has never been pretty as past exclusion have been race-based and the present crisis mirrors that history. Just last week, we were exposed to the presence of an estimated 15,000 Haitians who were camped at the Del Rio, Texas border where they sought entry into the United States. Presently, Biden administration officials expect the arrival of a caravan of more than 60,000 Haitians to shortly arrive at one of these border points. In addition, we have experienced the regular and horrible encampment of thousands who come from Mexico and Central America as they seek to enter this country. It is estimated that between 700,000 and a million people will seek to enter the United States yearly and that 14.5 million undocumented individuals are presently living in this country. Why does the present immigration crisis exist? And what are its impacts on the subject of our discussions this evening? Joining with us for this discussion are attorney Anna Nunez, an immigration lawyer with the Faye Grafton Nunez Law Firm, and attorney Dan Mello, an immigration specialist at the North Carolina Justice Center. So both of you, thank you for uh, joining us for this discussion this evening. Thank you, pleasure to be on. Thanks for having us. Well, let's, let's just start out you know, for our audience with, if, if you could just take a couple of minutes each and kind of describe the work that you do uh, as, uh, as immigration attorneys. Uh, first, uh, Attorney Nunez with uh, your law firm and then Attorney Mellows with the uh, North Carolina uh, Justice Center. Well, hello everyone. Um, so my work is really focused on uh, family immigration, um, removal defense. So those folks that are uh, in removal or what folks understand to be deportation proceedings. Um, the intersection of 
criminal and immigration law. So when someone who is not a U.S. citizen gets charged with a criminal offense um, and business immigration, some business immigration help businesses to bring employees here or to keep their employees here um, and, you know, help workers um, obtain status here in the U.S. depending on what they do. Okay. That's really the focus of my practice at this point. Okay. And Attorney uh, Mello. Uh, here at the Justice Center, uh, we primarily have uh, a number of asylum cases. So we do do a fair bit of court representation um, for asylum work, a uh, smattering of other family-related and, and uh, miscellaneous. We actually brought um, some cases from Afghanistan with me from a prior practice. So working with some Afghan nationals at the moment on, on family reunification. And then um, we sort of uh, see ourselves to some degree as movement lawyers trying to uh, work in collaboration with migrant groups and migrant rights movements here in North Carolina um, to pursue equity goals here in the state. You know, the you know when I talked about the numbers of uh, people who are seeking to enter uh, this country uh, earlier, uh, that was just a uh, partial portrait of what uh, this, uh, this system looks like. Uh, can, can both of you, from, from your, your different experiences that you, you've had with the wide range of, uh, of people who seek entry or seek to stay uh, in the country, why is it that so many people are attempting to leave their countries of birth to come to the, uh, the United States, and this is typically involves some very dangerous travels uh, that they are engaged in for the purpose of uh, getting to this country. So, what 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 are the reasons that uh, that they seek to leave and to uh, join us here in this country? So, I mean, I think um, in my recent experience, uh, just like Dan too, I also we our office volunteered to help some um, Afghan refugees that were coming into Fort Lee um, earlier in the month. Um, and what I, you know, I think for me, I came here seeking a better life myself. And I think the story is the same for everyone. You know, there is something happening in that country um, that is making people leave. And, you know, there's nothing harder than dropping your whole entire life, taking your children um, putting them in danger and to some extent, you know, because of the journeys being so arduous and saying, you know what, I got to get out of here. Um, so we see that story play out for different reasons. Some people want to get out for economic reasons. Some people want to get out because of violence. Some people want to get out um, because they're being targeted for certain uh, characteristics they may have or they may possess. And we see that, for example, um, with the Afghan refugees, these people, for the most part, worked for us for 20 years for the military. And then all of a sudden they're like, oops, you know, we got to go. Um, have fun. We'll see. We'll try to get you out. So these things, you know, it's always the same story that I hear. You know, obviously people leave for different reasons, but um, it's always because something happens in their home country the country of Haiti, for example, we have an earthquake that happened um, some time ago. And then we have the assassination of a president. Um, 
and you know these things kind of compound people's ability to support themselves to keep their children safe um to to keep themselves safe so these are all things that i see in my practice when i talk to clients they bring these issues up to me a lot of times there's a lot of violence against women in different countries um violence against children um mutilation of children in certain countries in africa that we see becoming an issue and you know parents trying to get their kids out um so in in my view these are some issues that um certainly come up yeah i you know i would certainly echo um some of those things right that it's like there's a there's a sort of a wide spectrum of of drivers you know climate uh, change has has increased um, the number of displaced people and will continue to increase the number of displaced people um, worldwide as that situation worsens. Um, specifically in um, Central South America, Caribbean, um, from my perspective, there's a great deal of, this isn't a new problem, right? It's actually a pretty old problem as it pertains to migration patterns coming to the U.S. Um, in, from my perspective, a lot of that has actually been questions of, of um, imperialism and expansion um, that took place over the last 200 years throughout Central America, um, U.S.-backed coups, U.S.-backed involvement in, in countries that have resulted in all kinds of destabilizations, um, you know, the, the neoliberalization of, of some of those economies has ultimately wrecked them and, and driven things forward, even things like trade agreements like NAFTA, um, you know, decimated rural populations in Central America and Mexico um, to where, you know, they were forced to sell the only other thing that they had, which was themselves basically by coming to labor cheaply um, here in the country. So there's a really big history there. Um, and, and I think sometimes it gets lost in, in the immediate crises that keep coming up over and over and over again. Um, Afghanistan's a great example. Haiti's a great example of that, right? That, that um, you know, we lose perspective of the 20 years of an U.S. involvement in Afghanistan because we can only focus right now on trying to help as many people as we possibly can. Same thing with the massive numbers of folks coming from Haiti. Um, you know, the, the pressure is on right now to just try to keep as many of them safe. Um, and we don't have time to really address. It's like, okay, well, what are some of the systemic core issues that is causing tens of thousands of Haitians to leave an island to then travel through, as you said, uh, Professor Joyner, a, a very dangerous trek through Central America just to get here. And both of you have talked about, you know, this, this wide ranging, um, uh, the wide ranging causes that result in people packing up, leaving, putting themselves in harm's way. And um, Dan, you specifically said we've got this, you know, this long history. So we've got a history of the United States involvement, which in some ways have led to the destabilization in many countries, which um, as a result uh, prompt people to come to the United States. Um, Anna, you mentioned, of course, the um, wanting to come to this country for a better life because of economics. This is something that has happened throughout the the you know genesis of this country as as Irv noted in his intro and my question is is there there appears to me to be a lack of understanding of our history one the history of how the country was formed like really 
um, and the history of the United States involvement, which may have led to destabilization. We're at a moment in time in this country where there's a refusal to acknowledge the history of this country and it's impacting people's perceptions. Could both of you share your thoughts on whether this lack of understanding plays into current day perceptions by many of um, the need for individuals to come to this country and the response to that? Yeah, you know, I think that one of, it's two sort of overlapping issues. The big problem is that nobody understands that this started like 40 years ago. (laughs) You know, this has been going on. We have destabilized Central America. We have, you know, gone, we have offered no aid to Haiti. Haiti's been a disaster for, you know, a long time. And, you know, everybody's like, oh, it's fine. It's fine. This is just kind of like a volcano ready to erupt. And it's been erupting for a while. Um, and and it's, it's that issue is that we don't understand that this stuff started so long ago, like Dan said, and it's just keeps compounding. But also there's a very, uh, there's a lack of understanding of our immigration system here as well by those who live here um, and our politicians. You know, when you try to have a conversation about this with someone, everybody's like, well, they need to get out. They're taking our jobs. You have this kind of rhetoric and there's no willingness to understand the system in which we operate. You know, one of the things I always, whenever I talk to somebody like that, I always say, you know, well, how do you want these people to get legalized? You know, like, what is your solution here? And they're like, well, they need to do it right. But what does that mean to you? You know, the, the conversation is very shallow. There's, there's no, nothing there. There's no substance. And one of the um, things I like to talk about are people who come here on visitor visas and overstay because they actually make a very large, if I remember correctly, it's like, 60% of undocumented people are people that come here on an airplane with a visa and overstay. Um, and that that may be an outdated uh, statistic, but I'm pretty sure I'm, I'm in the ballpark. And, you know, nobody even talks about that. Nobody talks about that because those people have money because they were able to buy a plane ticket. They were able to get a visa. They were able to come here. Um, they may have family here that did that for them. You know, we focus on, you know, black and brown people that are coming, they're walking, they're maybe, you know, economically, they, they're, you know, way down on the totem pole as compared to somebody who can afford certain things like an airplane ticket and applying for a visa and showing that they have assets in order to get that visa. So we see this really big disconnect with all this focus going to this kind of migration and nothing to the other side which is huge. Um, So, you know, to me, that's one of the big disconnects. And I think it's just a lack of education on our own history, you know. Um, You know, nobody learns about the the triangle, the what we call the Northern Triangle, you know, Honduras, Guatemala, El Salvador. Nobody talks about the political situation in Haiti. I haven't had a conversation about that with anyone in a long time. And nobody really cares, right? You know, Haitians have been going to South America since 2010. You know, most of them have been kicked out of South America. That's why we see this giant migration, you know, of people that have been living in Brazil for 10 years. All of a sudden, you know, Brazil's kicking everybody out. 
So now they've got to come over here to the United States because they have nowhere else to go. Um, those kind of conversations just aren't, they're not happening. Um, you know, and I think that that's a really big disconnect and we're doing ourselves a huge disfavor by ignoring all this, you know, because we're not learning from it and we're just expecting this problem to go away and it's just not going to, unless we start talking about it and learning about it. Yeah. For, for me, there's, there's a, a big component of this discussion that gets pigeonholed in this like weird moral question of whether or not people deserve to be here. You know, right. I, I put those in very heavy quotation marks um, in part because it's like, you know, that's since very, very long time now, that's sort of been the rhetoric. And, and that's true of even the Democratic Party, right, is that, oh, we should feel sorry for these people or these children that come or these, you know, small families and yeah. X, Y and Z, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the problem with that is that it, it does. It completely throws the history out the window. Right. And so we don't get to examine the question, like the fundamental questions of justice around why is the system this way in the first place? Uh, you know, I'll give you a clue. There's racial economic reasons for that. Um, but but also that um, going forward, then we can't ever examine the system in that same light of, is this just in the first instance? And instead we're stuck, you know, circling this drain around, well, you know, yes, they broke the law or yes, they overstayed their visa. Or yes, they came in when they shouldn't have, but... And it's like, no, there's we we need to stop the butt piece and start with this the the fact that the system excludes so many people, whole harbors control over so many bodies and keeps so many people out, regardless of whatever political party is in power, um, actually suggests that there's a there's a much deeper problem here that we've ignored. This is the uh, legal legal review. And uh, we are talking about the uh, immigration crisis, which uh, exists now uh, in our country. And we are talking with uh, Attorney Anna Nunez and uh, Attorney Dan Mello, both are immigration uh, specialists uh, dealing with uh, this uh, issue. We're going to take our break right now. We want you to uh, stay with us as we continue. Uh, this uh, discussion, and we should be right back. So hang on. Good evening. My name is Caitlin Chesney, and I'm a current 2L at the North Carolina Central University School of Law, and this is your community event spotlight. Are you looking for something to do in Durham? Check out the Civil Rights Legacy Downtown Durham Walking Tour. This event is held every third Saturday at 10 a.m. from now until November 20th. The tour is a great way to learn about the rich history of African-Americans in the city of Durham. You can find more details about this event and register at discoverdurham.com events. My name is Caitlin Chesney, and this is your Community Event Spotlight. Thank you. Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Legal Review. Thank you so very much for uh, staying with us. Uh, we're discussing uh, the immigration crisis uh, in uh, the United States, and uh, I'm sure many of you have uh, heard about it, read about it, or seen it on uh, television uh, of late, uh, but this is something that had been going on for time immemorial. 
uh, in, uh, in this uh, country. And we have uh, attorney Ana Nunez uh, and uh, Dan Mello, uh, who are joining with us this evening uh, to talk about uh, their experiences with this uh, immigration crisis. Uh, when, 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 when you talked earlier, uh, both of you hinted at, well, I guess you did a little bit more than hint at it, but that, that, that the crisis portion of this immigration piece is uh, racial-based, uh, that uh, black and brown people are at the center of that, but of the uh, over 14 and a half million people who are undocumented uh, in this country, uh, the vast majority of them, we never uh, hear about them as being a part of a crisis. Uh, and uh, typically because they arrive uh, with means, with money, and they uh, come in uh, uh, by airplane or by, uh, by boat, uh, which also means that, uh, that they are probably of European or Nordic uh, uh, descent. Uh, can you kind of talk about the, you know, your experience with the racial nature of, uh, of the crisis that, uh, that we're dealing with uh, at this point? Uh, Dan, you want to start us out? Sure. You know, um, you know, race has always been a great scapegoat um, for, you know, picking and choosing fights on, on the immigration front. Um, you know, and, and even when it's not the sole basis, it just it works so well to divide people and to, um, you know, use as a narrative to exclude certain kinds of people, whether you go way, way back to the Chinese Exclusion Act um, or, you know, again, much more recently, the treatment of Haitian individuals and um you know, the long treatment now at this point of um, Central Americans trying to come to the country. Um, but then, you know, at the same time, right, like there's also a, a, a political piece to that. Um, if you examine, for example, how Cubans are treated um, when up until fairly recently, when they arrived in the U.S. and, and are given, a, it's not asylum, but it's a form of, uh, there's a special law that was passed just for them, the Cuban Adjustment Act. Um, they're treated much differently than some of their um, other Caribbean counterparts, right? And part of that is simply has to do with the fact that Cuba is a political enemy. Um, so there's just all that to say, it's like there's all of these overlapping things. Um, and to go back to the question of race, um, it, it really is just a, a very convenient way of um, excluding, like targeting, excluding certain kinds of people. So because there is no particular political interest right now in Haiti, there's also no reason to, to try to bridge the racial gap there um, and allow more of them in. And so, yeah, you know, if, all that to say, like if, if we were presented with the same fact pattern, um, but it was with Canada, I doubt very much that CBP would have been um, chasing people down on horseback. Mm -hmm. Okay, Anna? Yeah, I mean, I agree. Um, you know, the way I always, when, when I have a law student here that wants to learn, I always take it as, you know, as simple step as possible. We go through, you know, every document and things like that. And the way I like to talk about this is think about how this person got here, okay? What country are they from? How likely were they to get a visa to get here oh, in some sort of uh, legal way, right? Um, what are their chances? What are their assets? What ties do they have to that country? 
you know, what makes them not a flight risk? So all these things are kind of embedded in race before we even get to the person coming here. You know, these barriers are put in place for a reason. Um, Obviously, the government is saying that, you know, we don't want these people coming here and staying here. We want, you know, people visiting to visit and that kind of thing. But, you know, we have these barriers that obviously disproportionately affect poor people and people that are brown and black. So people from African countries, um, people from Central America, some people in South America. We also have indigenous populations that are super affected by this because there are language issues, um, you know, family structure issues. So I think these all these issues come into play when, you know, we have a person presenting themselves, let's say, at the border. Maybe they can't communicate. Um, you know, maybe there's an issue with the, what they're bringing, who they're bringing. Um, all these things come into play. And I think that, you know, and even at its core, race is a huge issue when we talk about immigration in this in this country. Also, who is the, you know, the special child at that time of the U.S. government, as I like to call it, you know, you know, I'm Cuban and I can say it, Cubans get special treatment and they shouldn't or they did up to some some point, um, you know, but that was but started in the 60s. You know, obviously a lot has changed since 1960. Um, but, you know, we want to give off the vibe that we're, you know, anti-communists and forever and we're going to, you know, kind of stick to our guns. And I think that also has, you know, U.S. looks out for its interests, you know, who who they want to make popular or who they want to help. Um, it wasn't until very recently that they decided to do something about the Venezuelans that have been in crisis for a long, long time, you know. So, you know, I think these things come up, but I think also the U.S. looks out for the U.S., you know, and, and they say, well, Haiti has nothing to offer us. So, you know, we'll try to, you know, it wasn't until somebody taped the Haitians under the bridge and it was all over the news and people saw, you know, men and horses whipping adults that, you know, things got a little interesting and they're like, oh, oops, you know, we're going to go ahead and try to process some of these people. Um, but we always have to take it there. You know, we, we can never just do the right thing. Yeah. Yeah. Attorney Nunez, you mentioned the, um, the barriers in place and the questions that you ask your students to think about how likely is it for this person to get um, the visas or, or whatever documents they're seeking. Can you talk about if the situation or just kind of contrast the different scenarios when someone is undocumented versus those who are um, documented? Yeah. So it, the the very first thing is that when a person enters with a visa, they're inspected um, or admitted. Okay. Automatically, that puts that person, if they ever marry a U.S. citizen, if they ever um, have an immediate relative that can petition for them here in the U.S., that gets them a green card very quickly. Um quickly in immigration terms is like five to eight months, but, um, you know, it gets them a pathway to, to getting some sort of legal status here. Okay. When somebody presents themselves at the border, um, a myriad of things can happen right now. The border is still technically closed. Um, so when somebody presents themselves at the border, what has been 
reported by or reported by certain people that they may be turned away just saying we don't want you here go back um you know they may be able to do what we call a credible fear interview where they um, are able to talk to an officer and express fear in returning to their home country so they may be allowed in for that sometimes they may be detained while that happens um so now we're talking about detention you know and people say well you know immigration is a civil civil matter well these are real prisons uh if you've ever been to one can't bring a cell phone and if you've ever been to a prison you know what that means you got to get patted down you know so all the conditions of a prison so now you see this person that came in on a on a visitor visa overstayed they're at home with their family they're hanging out you know and this person is now possibly detained now the government may say, you know what, we're not going to let you out just on your own, you know, on your word. We're going to put a bond on you, you know, so immigration. So the CBP and ICE can put a bond on that person. But sometimes um, person can't pay a bond, you know, and sometimes ICE may choose not to put any bond. And the person may have to ask for a bond in front of an immigration judge. Now you're talking about hiring an attorney. You're talking about possibly paying a five, ten, fifteen thousand dollar bond, which, by the way, are very common bonds, bond amounts. Okay, I've seen some bonds high as fifty thousand um, dollars, just to be let out so you could fight your case in immigration court. So, it, you know, different ways of entering have consequences for folks. You know, um, so. And I'm not saying that they, that, you know, CVP process everyone and locks them up. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that it does happen very often. Um, you know, they may process somebody and we'll just say, look, here's a notice to appear, go home, have a nice day. But um, the other alternative is that they will detain you and you will have to fight your case. And sometimes if you're saying I'm applying for asylum, great. You entered through, I don't know, let's say you entered through um, Texas, right? You went through Texas. They will send you to Louisiana. Who who do you know in Louisiana? No one. Um, so it, there's also a sense of isolation. Uh, there's maybe family separation if you came with other people. Um, so there's lots of little things that can happen. And then you have this person that entered on a B1 or B2 that's just, you know, in their family's house in Sarasota drinking a margarita. So you know, different ways of entering can have a lot um, of effect on how a person starts their immigration process here in the U.S. Um, and that person may still, the person in, with the margarita who entered on a visitor visa may still apply for asylum, but they can do it from their house, you know? Um, Let me just, just raise this quick question uh, before we get to Dan, but uh, is the immigration violation a crime? So it depends. Um, I know Professor Dawson worked for oil at some point, so she's got some knowledge on this. But um, when you um, enter, most immigration violations are civil, uh, civil matters, right? So they're not supposed to be considered criminal offenses. There are some offenses that are, are immigration related that are criminal offenses. Um, uh, illegal re-entry uh, is one of them. 
it can be a misdemeanor or a felony depending uh, how many times you get charged with it. Um, there are other crimes like alien smuggling, um, like uh, harboring an alien. Uh, we have marriage fraud, uh, document fraud, passport fraud. Um, all those things are considered criminal. And they, this Eastern District of North Carolina has been prosecuting um, immigrants for things like that for a long time. Voting, illegal voting, um, even if it was like a illegal registration, so you, you registered without, um, without being a U.S. citizen. Um, making a false claim to U.S. citizenship, those things are all crimes, criminal offenses. But the um, regular Im immigration violation, though, is a civil that's right. They're supposed to be. So like, let's say you entered without inspection, which is a really common one. You come in through the border, you know, you, you sort of give yourself to a CBP when when they see you, but you're already on the U.S. side. Um, it's your first time coming. You entered without inspection. Um, that will be noted as sort of a not really a, a crime, just a, a civil violation. Right. But, um, you go to, but you go to jail. Or detention, I'm sorry. Yeah, you still can get detained for it. So, you know, it's kind of interesting. Um, Even though the Supreme Court has expressly said that it's not punitive in nature, so it therefore, yeah. you know, not criminal, you know, it, it, it's not the same thing. But for all practical purposes, as Anna pointed out, it's the same thing. Yeah. Well, let me, you, you, you talked about um, what happens or the, differentiate, the differences in the process. Can you talk about this Title 42 and how Title 42 is now merged into these uh, immigration considerations? Well, first I guess, what is Title 42? <laughs> Dan, you wanna take that one? Sure. Um, so briefly, um, it, Title 42 is actually an old law in the books that allows um, the executive to um, for you know, health reasons to prevent people from coming to the country and having some some level of of leeway over that issue, and um, President Trump really weaponized this, um, and you know, to date has uh, it's still in place, right? So uh, basically, because of the pandemic, Title Forty Two was used as a means of immediately expelling. Um, migrants um, from coming into the country and sadly has continued even well into the Biden administration. The Biden administration has defended it in court. Um, it, it continues to be a means of, of immediately expelling without any kind of due process, which was already pretty bad to begin with at the border, um, just immediately expelling migrants. Um, they've, been, they've been putting um, folks on, on planes back home, um, including Haitians, um, flying them back home no matter what you say about you know your fears of return, uh, your claims to asylum or any other humanitarian benefit uh, under Title 42 thus far, um, you can be placed on a plane and sent home. All right, you are listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And we've been talking this hour about the immigration crisis that currently and almost always exists here in the United States. We have with us as our guest in our Zoom radio studio, attorney Anna Nunez, who is an immigration lawyer with the firm Faye Grafton Nunez. 
and attorney Dan Mello, who is an immigration specialist at the North Carolina Justice Center. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back. We hope you stay with us. Hello, this is Brittany Burks with the Legal Eagle Review. Here is some recent news regarding immigration law. The immigration proposal, which includes many executive orders by President Biden, provides the following. First, foreign nationals present in the U.S. on or before January 1, 2021 and who pass a criminal background check would be eligible to apply for temporary legal status, apply for green cards after five years, and citizenship three years later if they meet certain requirements. Second, deferred action for childhood arrival holders, temporary protected recipients, and farm workers who are present on or before January 1, 2021, who meet certain requirements would be immediately eligible for green cards and citizenship three years later. The Secretary of DHS may waive the physical presence requirement for those deported on or after January 20th, 2017, who were physically present for at least three years prior to removal for family unity and humanitarian purposes. Finally, keeping families together by clearing backlogs, recapturing unused visas, eliminating lengthy wait times, and other provisions that keep families apart. This is Brittany Burks with the Legal Eagle Review. Thank you for listening. We're back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson and my co-host Irving Joyner and I have been talking about the immigration crisis with attorney Anna Nunez, who is an immigration lawyer with the law firm Faye Grafton and Nunez, and attorney Dan Mello, who is an immigration specialist at the North Carolina Justice Center. Now, both of you have stressed the importance of um, having an understanding of uh, having someone in your corner who has an understanding of the law. It can be incredibly challenging for individuals to have access to legal services. Um, Dan, let's start with you. Can you talk about the the challenge that exists? Um, Well, first of all, why it's so important that individuals who find themselves in uh, situations where Uh, their immigration status is in question, that they are um, being detained because of their status, why it's so important that they have access to legal representation and the challenges for them to have access to that. Yeah, uh, you know, we've alluded to it several times during our discussion here, but the immigration law is this horrifying sort of morass that is only rivaled by the tax code. I mean, you have overlapping statutes, regulations, court decisions, agency, you know, um, memos and perspective and interpretations. It's, it's, It's a horribly convoluted system and one that, you know, frankly, even baffles the best of practitioners at times in terms of navigating 
Um, but that being said, in terms of the representation piece, so it, it is essential, I think, in many instances, unfortunately, for someone to have a representative in their corner, even in non-adversarial settings, uh, non-adversarial in quotations, um, with the government. Um, but, you know, unfortunately, there, while you have a right to counsel in immigration court, you don't have the right to counsel at government expense, right? Because it is a civil proceeding. Um, so uh, you can certainly hire an attorney or if you're able, you know, of low means, you know, find one of the handful, especially in our state, the handful of nonprofits who are able to take cases on. Um, but I can, I can assure you, having worked in this area for a while, that the need far outstrips um, the availability of counsel um, for uh, for individuals, and I frankly, I think even if the private bar um, were somehow able to subsidize, um, you know, their their costs uh, from elsewhere, from grants or other things, I'm not sure that we would still meet all of the need that that there is right now, given the magnitude of the system. Well, it, it, even with the uh, procedural hurdles that uh, that's present. Uh, can, can you talk about what is an acceptable level that the country uh, should uh, uh, accept people who are coming in from other countries because of economic or other uh, conditions that they face there? And isn't there a right for the uh, country to reject uh, people who come from, uh, from other countries? You want to answer that? Uh, I mean, I'll tell, tip my hand here. I'm an abolitionist. I know there should not be a limit on the kinds of, of people that come to the country. Um, I think most of the arguments for um, the the way in which the system is set up and the justifications for it are are just bad ones. Um, and even frankly, in the context, let's let's take a really popular one, for example. Um, uh, around crime, right? Like we should be able to remove criminals back to their their country after they've committed, you know, been convicted of a crime here. Well, that is exactly how we got the gang problem that we have in Central America right now, right? The administrations for the last 30, 40 years have been systematically taking those populations of troubled young men um, who have been convicted of crimes and deporting them en masse back to their home countries where they have developed huge crime networks, right? So that is not addressing the underlying problems of, of, of my, that drive migration in the first instance. So all that said, right, um, apart from, I think, the moral responsibility that the U.S. bears for a lot of the choices and the, the driving forces that have pushed people here, we also should be taking a, a really hard look at how we're going to start riding that ship, right? How we're going to start fixing the things that push people here in the first place, because as Anna mentioned a moment, most people don't want to leave home and everything they've ever known to travel to somewhere else that's probably going to be hostile to them, right? So we should start by asking, why is it that so many people are leaving in the first place, and then get to the question of who gets to stay, which again, in my view, is anyone who wants to. So I'm going to disagree. Uh <laughs> just to make it fun. Um, yeah. You know, I think, I think we do have to draw the line somewhere. You know, I don't think um, 
we need to be allowing folks with you know certain criminal records in this country um i think that's a that's a very dangerous line i think the issue and i think dan brought it up is that we need to understand why these countries are the way that they are and we need to help fix that uh, because we caused most of that. So, um, you know, until we do that, we're going to be seeing, you know, hundreds of thousands of people coming to our border seeking protection. Um, you know, the law, the way that the INA is written and, and you know, there's lots of grounds of inadmissibility, people that we don't want to hear, you know, national security reasons, um, people convicted of certain crimes, uh, and all that kind of stuff, right? But, you know, there are people that need to be in this country um, and are seeking our protection, and we're not helping them. Those folks need to be let in this country, and there's got to be a way to do it. Um, and, and I think, you know, we've needed immigration reform for a long time. Uh, we've never gotten it, really, um, anything that's useful anyways. We, there's a lot of Band-Aids that presidents put on stuff to make it look good. Um, giving certain countries TPS or, you know, the Liberian Adjustment Act, those kind of things. But we need some real change. And we also need to help the countries that are struggling with crime, most of them poverty, um, and these systemic issues that aren't going to go away. Um, they're only going to get worse. Uh, and every time there's a change in government, it's only going to get exacerbated. So, you know, I, I think, do we need to have a line? Yes. Um, I don't believe everyone should be let in the United States, but we also need to look at why people are coming here and why, you know, you know, we have the, the domestic violence survivor coming in this country with their, you know, with their children and they're not being allowed in, even though they have a perfectly good basis for, for asking for asylum. Okay. So these kind of things you know, they're frustrating because we see, yeah, yeah, these people are criminals or all this. They're not, you know, 98% of these people who just need some help. Um, and we should be letting them in. Um, but that 2%, I, I don't agree. I think that we need to um, draw the line somewhere. You know, when Dan was talking about the, the deportation of individuals who commit crimes. Uh, so these are folks who are here, um, okay. they are documented, they commit a crime, and then they are, you know, removed. Sure. Um, Anna, I know you were saying that part of your practice involves this intersection between immigration and, and criminal law. And um, to Dan's point about the immigration law being baffling to many lawyers, right? Okay. That, that if someone has um, if they're not a citizen, but, but they're here and they're documented and there's some, there will be some immigration impact on the um, resolution of their criminal matter, that that needs to be, they need to be informed of that. And that needs to yeah. play a role in the ultimate decision in terms of how they're counseled. Can you talk about that intersection and how you could have someone who is not a dangerous, violent yeah. individual who, if they aren't provided adequate legal advice, could very well find themselves deported when it's not necessary for them to be. So um, there's two systems in North Carolina that I believe really contribute to this. 
One of it is the probation system in North Carolina. Um, and I think that's really a big one. And the other system that we see contributing to this is, is the jails. So the, the, I guess the sheriff, the sheriffs. Um, in certain counties that still cooperate with ICE, we see folks that come in for like a no operator's license. They get arrested all of a sudden for a class three misdemeanor. And you're like, why? You know, you're not arresting somebody with, with a 15 over the speed limit, which is also a class three misdemeanor. I can guarantee you that you're not arresting the soccer mom down the street over this. So person gets arrested. They get a bond put on them for NOL. They get it, all of a sudden ICE comes and gets them, depending on which county that person is in. And all of a sudden ICE is saying, okay, well, we got you in custody. We're going to, you, you're here without any documentation. We're going to put you in removal proceedings. They detain the person. The person's in federal detention for two months. No family. It, you know, they may have kids, they may have lost their job. If they're the primary caretaker, their spouse is struggling financially. You know, this, this whole catastrophe just mm-hmm. rains upon them all at once. And after two months, this guy's like, you know what? I got to get out of here. I'll sign whatever you want me to sign. I'll sign a removal order. I'll sign whatever. Get me out of here. And that's what happens. More often than not, this person will sign a voluntary departure or they'll go ahead and sign what we call a stipulated order of removal and just say, look, I want to leave. And they'll go back to their home country where they may be killed. Um, You know, horrible consequences may happen. And then, you know, and that's just a simple ticket. Uh, we also see this happening in the, sort of, a, if I can switch gears in the probation um, system, where even if the county does not cooperate with ICE, probation does. Um, we see that in Wake County, for example. Um, you have somebody charged with a, a, an offense, let's just say like something like a simple assault that's not really a deportable offense, doesn't make you an admissible or anything. Um, let's say they put that person on probation person goes to their supervised probation appointment and all of a sudden there's the ICE agent waiting for them. And the person's like, what, what, what's happening? And they're like, well, you're here without any sort of documentation and we're going to take you in. Something like that really makes me angry because that person, you know, was just abiding by whatever conditions, you know, were, were told to him to do, go show up at your probation appointment, check in. And He's been sort of duped or she's been duped. And now they're in immigration custody and will likely the, the same scenario of the first guy, very similar scenario of the second. Um, so, yeah, and I can see that. And I practice only criminal law in Wake County. And I see that so much when um, the probationary setting and they will not stop. Um, they call ICE every time. If they suspect that you, um, even if you're a resident, they will cause. So um, it's very frustrating, but that's where you can see really impacting people. And it's not just the person that gets arrested. It's a whole family system that gets impacted. It's the children, it's the spouse, it's the economic stability of the household. Now the kids start struggling in school. Somebody gets in trouble. The spouse all of a sudden has to work outside of the home. And there's sort of the, the dynamic of the family is destroyed. Um, so, and these things keep on happening, even though we all like to put on, you know, 
oh, everything's fine. We have a democratic president. Everything's good. You know, it's, it's still happening and it's still happening here. And then you have those uh, families where you have a mixture of people who are undocumented and others who are uh, citizens and uh, that prevents uh, the others from uh, participating in the uh, political process because they don't want to bring uh, uh, attention uh, right. to uh, the family members. And so there's a chilling effect uh, that, uh, that exists uh, there. So this is a, a powerful uh, issue. What's the resolution? Oh, man. Um... I don't know, a pie in the sky kind of thing, uh, even just from a reformist perspective, would be to basically get rid of most of the INA and start over again and rewrite the vast majority of it. Um, you know, more proximate things um, would be to, uh, you know, start working on immediate paths to legalization, uh, which, you know, have been part of some of the, the current efforts, you know, at, at the federal level. Um, as well as as possibly, you know, trying to, in my view, if, if we could get rid of the Illegal Immigration Reform Act, which put so many of the penalties in place and some of the, so many of those issues. Um, and frankly, if we would if we could get uh, which I'm not sure that this would ever happen either. But if we could get both Border Patrol and the immigration system to abide by the actual requirements for asylum um, and treat that as a respected um, process. Uh, I think just those, those things, which are not simple things um, politically, but at least in terms of, um, you know, the strict letter of the law are actually fairly straightforward changes um, would go a, a long way in um, protecting uh, people again. Yeah, I agree. I think, um, I think getting people in a pathway to legal status now. People that are here, um, you know, I can't tell you how many parents of, of children I talk to that have been here 34 years and there's nothing I can do for yeah. them. For, for, you know, for simple stuff. It's the way they entered or how many times they entered. So, you know, I think a path to legalization now is should be a priority. Um, and, and it can't, you know, it's not that hard. It really isn't. Um, and I think some fix for people that have TPS, people have DACA. This is ridiculous, you know. These people have been here most of their lives. Um, and, and I think, you know, and big reform to our immigration courts. I think that that has to be a piece of it, too, because our immigration courts are a mess. Um, and what Dan said, you know, start, start over, you know, just rip up the INA and, you know, yeah. parts of it and try to start over. Um, IRA, IRA needs to go away, uh, you know, those kind of things. But those are easy fixes. You know, somebody just needs to sit down and do them. They're sort of like studying for a test. You know, it's not going to happen. You, you just got to sit down and, and read, you know, yeah. and then you take the test. Um, it's that simple. Um, but a lot of people just kind of, they, they think it's so complex or, you know, it's just a, such a huge political issue here that it just makes it so much harder to resolve because nobody wants to. Everybody just wants to campaign on it, you know? And uh, both of you talk about why it's so important that uh, even those who may not have 
uh, immigration issues that directly affect them or, or their families, why this is something that all of us should be concerned about. And both of you have talked about the, the damage to families uh, that occur and how we can't have a healthy, robust society if families are being torn apart. And this is a responsibility for all of us. Can you two both share your thoughts on that in these final minutes? I mean, yeah, just briefly, right? Um, it, it's the whole, uh, the whole of the system is premised on whether or not you have the right to remain where you are, right? Um, and in many cases, that's simply not true. And so what that means is that even in the instances where families are not being directly targeted or don't face immediate threat, that threat hangs over them every single day. Um, and because of that, there are immediate consequences to the family. And I think there are also just, whether families or individuals, we're also talking about big long-term consequences for our society. Um, and so as, as a matter of justice and a matter of compassion outside of that, um, we've got to address this collectively. Yeah. I mean, I think I, from, from our discussion, I, I just don't see the United States, and I never have, as a place where we exclude people. Um, you know, for me and my family, this was a dream come true, but my path to legalization was so much easier than, you know, a lot of other people, just because of where I come from. And, you know, I think that when you come here and you, you I mean, I see my clients, I see my friends that are immigrants, my family, you know, this is what America is about. If you go to Ellis Island, there it is. You know, that's how we all got here. You know, we weren't the first ones here. I'll tell you that. So, you know, I, I think that people lose that. You know, this is this is America. You know, we started this country um, in, in real bad terms and we're still dealing with all the crap that we did. Uh, but we are a nation of immigrants. This is the population of the United States. I mean, I think it, people lose sight of that and we need to go back to that and we need to be welcoming um, to folks. And we've just kind of lost all that. Everybody's just kind of like, out, out, out. I don't want you here. Um, and I don't really know how you can change that perspective of people, but um, I wish it would. Well, I think one way to help change people's minds and, and certainly exposing them to uh, this very important education pieces for the great work that the two of you are doing. We want to thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your knowledge and your wisdom. Um, and we encourage our listeners to share this episode and, and let's make sure that we have a firm understanding of the situation, why it exists and what we can do to change it. So we'd like to thank our guest, attorney Anna Nunez, with the immigration law firm Faye Grafton and Nunez and attorney Dan Mello, who is an immigration specialist at the North Carolina Justice Center. And of course, we'd like to thank you, our listening audience, for spending your Sunday evening with us. We hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have any questions or comments, please send us an email. You can reach us at LegalEagleReview at nccu.edu. And if you ever miss this show on Sunday, you can find the show on our Legal Eagle Review podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next week, stay informed, engaged, healthy, and safe.